Welcome to another edition of the Do This, Sell More show. This is our Inside BS interview series where we talk to people who are experts in a particular field. Today, I'm talking to Brian Tannenbaum. Brian is a lawyer who represents other lawyers in ethics matters here in Florida. He handles criminal defense cases as well. About 80% of his practice these days is being a lawyer's lawyer. That means he represents lawyers who are in trouble, really, who have their law license on the line in front of the Florida Bar. That's the regulatory agency here in Florida that governs all activity by lawyers. He also represents people who are applying to be lawyers in Florida in front of the Board of Bar Examiners. He does this to help people who have perhaps run afoul of the law or who have challenges in getting their law license. He represents them in the license application process. Brian also handles bar admissions hearings, he handles grievance defense, and he does everything with lawyers from hiring and merging of law firms all the way through to representation of them in either criminal or bar proceedings. And he also still does some high-end, mostly white-collar criminal defense cases. About 80% of his legal work these days is representing other lawyers. The other 20% is handling criminal defense and some civil matters that may involve the practice of law in some way. Brian is the author of the book, The Practice, Brutal Truths About Lawyers and Lawyering. And this is a fantastic book. If you're a lawyer, you need to go get it. I'll put a link in the description where you can buy it. It is from the American Bar Association Press. You can also find it on Amazon. He was admitted to practice law in 1995. He's admitted here in Florida, and he also is admitted to practice in front of the United States Supreme Court. Sit back and relax and enjoy a conversation between two friends who have been together working with and representing lawyers for a very long time. Please enjoy the interview. Welcome to another edition of the Do This, Sell More show. Today, you are going to eavesdrop on a conversation uh, between two guys who are longtime friends. Uh, My guest on the show today is Brian Tannenbaum, and he is a fantastic criminal defense lawyer, but an even better ethics lawyer for attorneys here in Florida. I met him 12, 13 years ago now, and we've been friends ever since. We are also business colleagues. He's referred me a lot of business, and I refer him cases of lawyers who have not only um, run afoul, let's say, of the Florida Bar, which is a regulatory organization here in Florida, also people who are attempting to get into the bar. And Florida is very uh, strict on who they let into the bar because, candidly, we have too many lawyers here in Florida. And Brian helps people who are trying to get their law license, people who are keeping their law license and uh, have, in the eyes of the Florida bar, done things they shouldn't have done. And he's also a resource for not only young lawyers but experienced lawyers in Florida. Uh, Let's start our conversation today with um, why you became a lawyer in the first place. I I like your story. I think your story is fascinating. I think people will enjoy it. Talk about why you became a lawyer, and then we can talk about how you got into doing what you're doing now. 
Well, it's an interesting question. It kind of chose me. I, I had been practicing criminal defense exclusively for the first seven years of my career, first as a assistant public defender and then in private practice. And um, a lawyer contacted me, I think in 2001, uh, and said, hey, I've got a problem with the bar. And I uh, heard you were on a grievance committee. Maybe you know the process. Can we talk about it? I said, sure. We started talking about it. He said, okay, I'm going to hire you to represent me. And I said, well, no, I don't do that work. Uh, there are lawyers, very few lawyers, but there are lawyers who do ethics work. And he said, no, 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 you're, you're my lawyer. Um, so I worked on the case and, and brought it to a successful outcome. And my fee uh, was a bamboo plant. Um, and, uh, and then a few weeks later, I got a call from a law student saying, Hey, I'm having trouble getting into the bar. And I heard you're the man. Uh, and like an idiot, I said, who told you that? He said, Oh, your client. Um, well, I took his case and I, I helped him get into the bar and then it just happened. I just started getting calls. And then in 2005, I realized I'm doing a lot of this work. Um, this isn't what I wanted to do. And I think this is a lesson for all lawyers how things can happen. Um, I was trying to figure out how to deal with what was happening. And finally, I was given advice. Um, well, just let it happen. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And uh, just so happened that 18 years later, it's the bulk of my practice. Um, and when you asked me when I went to law school, why, why are you in law school? I would have said, oh, I want to be a criminal defense lawyer. Um, and while I still do criminal defense, um, it is a minority aspect of my practice now, and I just do mostly ethics and enjoy it. All right. So talk to me about how difficult it is when you're representing people who think they can do as good a job by themselves. Right. Because you're you're the you're the mechanic for the car mechanic. Right. You're the you're the lawyer's lawyer. So. How hard is it, especially at the outset of the representation, when somebody comes to you for you to sit down with them and slap them around and get them to realize that they don't know what's going on here or that they're not the right person to represent themselves? Talk about that. It's a great question. I get this a lot. And, and the first thing I always do in response is say uh, lawyers as clients are like clients. Uh, there are some that come to me and they say, uh, just do what you need to do. I trust you. I know you're you're the guy who does this work. There are others who come in and say, okay, here's how we're going to handle this. And I have to explain, no, this isn't commercial litigation. This isn't a transaction like you may do in your practice. This is an administrative uh, case and it's handled very differently. And so lawyers are like any other clients. They have different personalities. Um, some of them come in and they just say, look, here's my money. Here's my file. Please help me. Tell me what I need to do. And others come in and they say, uh, you know, I'm going to be your co-counsel and I have to explain to them, well, then, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to listen to me. So, uh, it is difficult sometimes, but because I've been doing this as long as I have, I have the luxury of my clients understanding that I'm not just a guy helping them out. I'm someone who actually does this work. So more and more I get lawyers who understand that that they need to listen to me i do get the lawyers that say well maybe i'll just handle this myself but you know a fool for a client that whole philosophy kind of follows along and then a lot of times later on they wind up calling me and saying well i tried to handle this but uh you know it didn't work out too well how hard is it to walk away from something that's a good case because the client is going to be a pain in the ass 
Um, that's a great question too. It becomes a lot easier. Um, it, it's frustrating uh, to my wife when I come home and I go, hey, I turned down this case today uh, because I just don't like the client. You know, what was the fee going to be? And I, I tell her and I, I just, I don't want to deal with, you know, I just celebrated my 25th year in practice uh, last week. And I don't want to deal with clients who uh, are going to take up all of my time, are not going to listen to me, are going to tell me there's a different way of doing things. Um, they're just not my clients. And, and more and more, you know, I took the philosophy years ago that I read, which was the best case is the case you don't take. And I have turned down some pretty big, significant, high paying cases uh, because I knew it would just ruin my life. And I've had those cases that have literally ruined my life for periods of time. And tell the folks who are the folks who are listening to this and uh, and watching on on YouTube. A lot of them are lawyers. Tell them how you handle the second thoughts that you have when that case goes away. Right, that's a fifty thousand dollar case or or more, and you've decided that you're not going to take it because this particular client is not going to allow you to do your best work and your your interpersonal relationship with him is going to keep you up at night. How do you handle the, wow, I, I really wish I had that money or I wish I had the exposure that came with this case, but I know it's not the right thing in my gut. How do you handle that? Well, I handle it through experience. So after 25 years, I know there's always another case. And I will tell you honestly that it hurts. It hurts to come home and say, you know, I turned down this case solely because I just don't think the client and I are a good fit. The money was really nice. Uh, and there are lawyers out there who will say, well, you know, how, how do you have the luxury of doing that? And I say, because I've had the experience of being on the other side, meaning taking the case, getting the calls at 7.30 in the morning, 7.30 at night, Saturday afternoon emails, demands of my time and just realizing that it's just not worth it. I can't say that it's easy to turn down money, but when you've been in a situation where you've gotten a really big fee and it's taken up seven days of your life every week, you realize the value of money is less than the value of your, your time and, and your, your well-being. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's probably some of the best advice any lawyers who are listening are, are going to receive. The cases you walk away from, you can never regret that because in your gut, you didn't think it was a good case to begin with. And this goes for entrepreneurs, too. If, you, if you're in professional services, whether you're an architect, you're an engineer, you're a CPA, you decide you don't want to work with this person, that decision is always going to be a good decision because... You're going to think to yourself, I should have never taken this guy on every time you have to talk to him. And there's nothing worse than that. There's nothing worse than a success you can't stand. Right. The other thing I will tell you is that sometimes I'll follow the case and I'll either follow it, you know, on a docket or the lawyer who took the case will actually call me and say, hey, listen, I know you spoke to this client. Can I talk to you about the case a little bit? Maybe I did a little bit of work before, you know, I, I decided I wasn't going to take the case. And, and most of the time it turns out that my intuition was correct. The client was very difficult. Uh, the case was not going to work out for the client no matter what happened because the client was not going to be satisfied. You know, the smell test really works in initial consultations with clients. And even when that client's got that cash sitting in their pocket, if you get a sense this is not going to be good for me, the better decision is just to say, 
I don't think this is going to work out. Yeah. All right. Let's talk now uh, about some of the things you and I talk about when we have uh, just individual conversations. Let's talk about bad lawyers because there are a lot of bad lawyers out there. How do if I'm a business owner and I'm looking to engage a lawyer, how do I determine or maybe I'm a consumer, right? And I need somebody to do my will or maybe I get in trouble and I need somebody to represent me for a DUI. How do I, what, what are some red flags? Let's start here. Give me red flags where I know that this person is a shoemaker and not a lawyer. Um, well, the first red flag is that you didn't get the lawyer through a referral source. Um, that is the number one way to find out who you should at least talk to. Maybe not hire, but at least talk to. You should always ask around. There's so many ways to communicate that you need a lawyer these days, online, email, text, whatever, these, these neighborhood forums, you can ask people, get names, and look up the lawyers. If you see a lawyer online uh, that looks like, you know, they should be on the strip in Las Vegas, meaning they're just like flashing all of these accolades and things, you know, look to see when they were admitted. Um, young lawyers are great, but if a lawyer was admitted three years ago and is claiming they've tried 300 cases and has you know, settled the millions and millions of dollars and verdicts and done all these things, you kind of want to say, wait a second, you know, you've only been a lawyer a couple of years. Did you really do all these things? Or were you just in a law firm where other lawyers were doing them and you can claim their moniker uh, and that you did them? And the other thing is, you know, to, to absolve yourself of any red flags, talk to the lawyer, ask questions. One of the worst questions I get is, have you ever handled a case exactly like mine? Uh, no, I haven't. Your facts are different than other people's facts. Have I handled a similar type of case? Sure. Um, but don't be so uh, interested in, you know, what was the result and what happened and what did they offer and how did it come out? Because every single case is different. But in terms of, you know, the red flags of the lawyer, if the lawyer is saying, yes, I handled a case exactly like yours and I won it. And, um, you know, you, you got to be very careful about what lawyers are saying uh, to try to get clients. Yeah. Now, now let's talk about what happens when people come to a lawyer, right? Uh, particularly a criminal defense lawyer or a bankruptcy lawyer, sometimes a family law attorney, there's embarrassment. People are embarrassed, right? They're embarrassed that number one, they screwed up somehow, or this situation has happened to them or they found themselves in this situation. How, uh, wh why, why is coming to a lawyer like going to a priest where you got to check that at the door because if you're not completely candid, your representation isn't going going to go well. Talk to people about, number one, why they shouldn't feel that way, and number two, why if they do feel that way when they sit down with their lawyer, they got to get over that. So any lawyer that's been practicing for any substantial period of time, you know, three, four, five years, me, 25 years, um, I've heard a lot of things. Uh, I've heard a lot of wild things. And clients need to really understand, number one, the attorney-client privilege. And that means that whether you hire the lawyer, everything is confidential. It doesn't matter. You walk in my office, you tell me a story, you decide not to hire me, that's confidential. I cannot divulge that to anybody. And lawyers are in the business of hearing people's problems. So what I like to do when someone starts 
explaining to me that they're embarrassed, they're not sure they want to tell the whole story. Well, let me tell you a story. And I tell them like one of the worst stories I ever heard. Uh, and they go, oh, well, that's not like me. You know, mine's like much less. And I go, yes, I, I understand that. Uh, and then they'll open up a little bit. But, but the main premise for me is that I need to know everything because I don't want to hear it from somebody else. I don't want to hear it from the other lawyer in the case. I don't want to hear it from a judge. I don't want to hear it from a police officer, from a bar investigator. I'd rather know everything because that helps me when I'm having a discussion with these people to say, listen, I know all the facts. I know what happened here. Um, let's talk about whether we can resolve the case. So I think clients need to understand that when they're going to a lawyer, A, it's confidential, privileged information, um, and that the lawyer probably has heard worse. Now, let's, uh, let's dispel uh, a few myths here. People can understand or discover how to look up a, a lawyer's uh, disciplinary record online. And in Florida, they make it actually very, very easy. And now there are websites that make it easy. How much credence should people put into the disciplinary infractions that somebody has been charged with when they're looking to hire a lawyer? So I go online and I see that five years ago, my lawyer uh, you know, received uh, uh, an admonishment from, from the bar for something related to how he managed his trust account. Should I be concerned about that? I mean, talk to me about disciplinary issues and how people should look at those when they're looking to hire a lawyer. Well, I always say that people spend more time researching, you know, the shoes they're going to buy than the lawyers they're going to hire. And I think that there's two things to look at when you find that a lawyer has a disciplinary history. A, read it, you know, read the documents, read the order that came from the court or the bar. Um, read the facts because a lawyer may have been reprimanded for uh, running a bad advertisement uh, that wasn't in compliance because it didn't have the red uh, thing on the bottom that said, you know, hiring a lawyer is a you know, difficult decision or whatever. You know, it may have been just a technical violation of the rules, or it may have been something like you said, where the lawyer, um, you know, mishandled their trust account. So the first thing is to discover the facts behind the discipline. Number two, and I think this is more important, is the lawyer willing to discuss it? If the lawyer is not willing to discuss it, walk away. The lawyer should be willing to say, listen, let me tell you exactly what happened here. I had a bookkeeper. She was handling my trust account. Um, and honestly, I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on. And we had this little problem and, and this is what it resulted in. I didn't steal any money. I didn't use it for gambling or drugs or anything like that. We hired a new accountant, a new bookkeeper, and everything's great. A, you've got a, a lawyer who's willing to talk about it, is, is telling you exactly what happened, and you feel more comfortable that the lawyer's being open. So I think, you know, disciplinary history is not a reason not to hire a lawyer as long as you know what happened and the lawyer's willing to discuss it. One of the things that I talk to people about all the time when it comes to this particular question is imagine if every action that you took throughout the course of the day was scrutinized and the mistake that you make today, just today, was reported, right? So for example, you know, I make a mistake and I tell a lie to a client because I don't wanna look foolish and I know I'm gonna correct that issue tomorrow, right? All of a sudden, 
that issue gets bigger and blows up, I go to the client and I say, listen, I lied. I apologize. Here's the reason I lied. Maybe I get fired. Maybe the client decides they don't want to work with me anymore. For a lawyer, that becomes a big problem and they have to sit down with the bar and explain why they lied to the client and why they didn't tell the truth. Even worse, if they do that in a court proceeding and they don't tell the truth to the court, that's a big problem for them. Lawyers have this level of scrutiny that's above and beyond the level of scrutiny for the average business person. I mean, there are people on TV, there are people that we voted for that lie dozens of times every day, but something as simple as that gets a lawyer in trouble. Explain that to folks and how a lawyer could have a bad day and that could become an issue that stays with them on their record for seven years, but stays with them for their career. So I see this a lot. Uh, we're going back to the days of Richard Nixon, the cover-up is worse than the crime. And when I get a call from a lawyer who says, hey, listen, I, I screwed up. Um, I didn't file this. Um, I missed this deadline. Um, I got this thing and, and I forgot to tell the client about it. Um, my first question always is, have you told the client? And 50% of the time, the answer is, oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I've already spoken to the client. He's coming in next week. We're going to talk about it. Uh, or he's coming in tomorrow. Um, and the other 50% is, oh, God, no, of course, I, I don't know what to say to the client. And I explain that the conduct is the conduct. What happened, happened. There's nothing you can do about it. But at this point, the bar is going to say, what did you do as a result? And there's two things that will kill you. Number one is backdating and forging documents. And I have to tell you something, I'm seeing this a lot. Um, I'm seeing letters that are written, that are dated, um, backdated, and, and the bar is not stupid. They have technology, they have experts, they have people who go into the lawyer's computer and say, this document was not created on the date that was written on it, it was created three days ago. Um, we have a problem here. So the bar takes the position that a single act of negligence is not necessarily uh, something that should cause discipline. But if you, as a result of that negligence, cover something up, create a document that's backdated, or lie to the client about it, um, you're gonna have a problem. Imagine the client coming to the bar and saying, hey, you know, Mr. Tannenbaum came to me the next day and told me exactly what happened. Uh, he offered to refund some money. He, he said he could fix it. And I really appreciate that. I mean, what's the bar going to do with that as opposed to a client coming in and saying, I found out about this because I went and looked at the court docket and found out, you know, Mr. Tannenbaum didn't file this document. That changes everything. Right, right. You know, and for those of you out there who are business owners, one of the things that I see a lot and I, I've experienced this myself is we think to ourselves, hey, listen, I'm just going to tell a little white lie to the client or I'm just going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to date that document uh, the week before and send it over to the client so the client doesn't think I missed this. The problem is not the time the client finds out and you have to go and correct it. The problem is every time the client doesn't find out that makes it a little bit more OK in your mind. And for me, that's like, 
you know, clumsy sports analogy time. That's like the pitcher who throws a pitch that's a little bit outside and he gets away with it with one umpire and the, that one umpire calls it a strike and then he gets aggravated because every time he throws that pitch after that, it's not called a strike. Well, it wasn't a strike to begin with. So what you have to do in your mind, regardless of if you're a lawyer or a business owner, you have to realize that the client wasn't okay when you didn't get caught. You just didn't get caught. And I see this a lot. Talk about, Brian, how people rationalize behavior in their mind and the longer they get away with it, it becomes more okay in their mind and the behavior was never okay. You have to see this a lot. Talk about that and how you see it in your clients and can you, can you ever come back from that? Can you ever get a client to realize, oh shit, I've been getting away with this for 10 years but it was never okay? Well, I think it happens in two different ways. Number one, it happens in, in a very nefarious way which is the theft of trust funds. Um, you know, lawyers generally don't just take $100,000 out of their trust account. Uh, they take uh, 6000 and then they take 8000 and then they take 9000 And then, well, no one's really asking for this money. Um, it's just kind of sitting here. For example, if you have a real estate lawyer who has a client, and this happens a lot, where the client has millions and millions of dollars and says, listen, lawyer, I'm going to give you $3 million to put in your trust account. We're going to invest in some property. I just want it here for when we have to do these transactions. And a year and a half later, there's been no transaction and the lawyer's running out of money and says, well, this money's been sitting in my trust account. Let me just take $10,000. No one's ever going to find out about it. And then all of a sudden, they're $180,000 in the hole and the client says, hey, I need my $3 million back. I've decided not to invest. Uh, then we have a problem. The, the other problem is in telling clients things that just aren't true. Um, I find it's, it, it's better to be honest, even if you're going to tell the client something they don't want to hear. When a client says, hey, when can you have my document done? Um, don't tell them this afternoon if you haven't started on it. Say, listen, I've been distracted. Some things are going on right now. I'm going to have it to you by the end of the week. Why don't we talk on Monday? That's a better answer than I'll have it to you tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and where is it? Well, no, I'll have it to you Thursday. Um, honesty, you know, is something that people struggle with all the time. That's why we have ethics rules. Uh, but I find that clients really appreciate when their lawyers just Tell them like it is. You've had to break bad news to many clients over the years as a criminal defense attorney and as as an ethics attorney. Um, and it's and you're breaking bad news to them, not because you've done anything wrong because of the situation. What's your what's your formula or what's your process for for telling people bad news? Rule number one, and this is just a personal thing. I never do it on a Friday. Um, the only time I will do it on a Friday is if it's required. Uh, the client needs to know something that day. That's very rare. Uh, so rule number one is no bad news on a Friday. It waits till Monday. I've actually told clients this on the Monday call. And I've told them, listen, I, I got this news Friday and decided not. And I always get a thank you. Thank you for not ruining my weekend. I really appreciate it. I understand there was nothing for me to do. And, you know, it was a good weekend with my kids and my family. Um, the other thing is, bring it out immediately. I call the client. Hey, how are you? Good. I'm good. Listen, I have bad news for you. Okay. And we're going to talk about this. I'm going to answer all your questions, but let me tell you what's going on. Um, now with Zoom, you know, I'm going to share a document on the screen. Here's the letter that I got. Um, here's our time frame. Here's what we need to do. Um, but when you deliver bad news, you need to set aside time to do that. Uh, the client's going to have multiple questions. 
and then they're going to call you back or email you back and say, wait a second, I forgot to ask you this. And you need to invite that. I always tell clients, listen, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. You're going to call me back. You're going to, no, I'm not. No, yes, you are. You're going to send me an email. It's fine. I'm here. Um, we need to talk about this. But don't ever call a client with bad news on a Friday if you don't have to. And B, don't ever be unprepared, meaning not have the answers that you know the client's going to ask. What's our next step? What do we need to do? How does this affect me? Where is this going to be published? You need to know the answers to all those questions. How do you counsel your clients when the situation's over and now it's time for them to move on with their life, right? So the lawyer who, who's had some disciplinary issue, they, they received their discipline, they got the letter put in their file, they were suspended, now they've been reinstated. What's your advice to people about moving on from a, from a big issue? So I, I made a mistake in my business and you know, I, maybe I had to file for bankruptcy protection. How do I move forward? Well, I tell them that the world is much more forgiving than they may think. Um, I also explain uh, that other people have been in the same situation and have moved on. And I give them examples of some of my clients who have moved on and, and been successful. And I think clients really appreciate that because particularly when you come from a, a legal perspective, when you are a lawyer, that, that's your identity and you can't imagine doing anything else. And when they take it away from you, even you know, for a month or a year or forever, um, you, you lose your identity and you don't think there's anything else you can do. So there needs to be an understanding that, you know, you went to law school, you're a semi-smart person. You can probably do something else. There's plenty of lawyers out there that don't practice law, that do other things. And as far as moving on from discipline, um, you know, I just explained to them that there are many other people in your situation and that have moved on and you just need to focus on the future, put this behind you, use it as a learning experience, and maybe just be upfront about it. You know, just talk to people. Listen, this happened to me. This could happen to you. And, and people will, you know, appreciate that. I, I know a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but depending on what the circumstances were, um, it may be an opportunity for you to become, you know, a resource for people. With disciplinary issues and professionals, there are two real categories of them. The first category is the person we caught on a bad day or at a bad point in their life or their career. And then there is the second type of person who, you know, is just bad and they shouldn't be in this role. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't have the trust of someone. And I think that, I think that fits with society too. There are people who, you know, have issues and those issues manifest themselves in doing something bad or having a bad period in their life. And then there are other people who are just at their core bad people. How do you um, how do you work with people? It's easy to work with people who are going through a rough patch and they made a mistake, or you caught them on a bad day and they made a mistake. I to me in my mind, it's easy to work with those people. How do you work with people who are just like downright awful people? Well, you're talking about criminals. You're talking about intentional fraudsters. You're talking about people who develop conspiracies to steal from clients and others. Um, and like you said, people who, as a mentor of mine said, um, shouldn't be lawyers. Uh, you know, a, a mentor of mine once told me, you know, Brian, some of our clients just shouldn't be lawyers. Um, 
And in those situations where there isn't a drug problem, there wasn't a divorce going on, there wasn't some kind of mental breakdown, this is just a person who can't comport with the law, um, what I do is I just explain the consequences. And I say, listen, here's what the Supreme Court has done in these types of cases. Now, we can fight this, certainly fight this, but these are the consequences that you're looking at. You may want to consider not making a record of this and just agreeing to give up your license. Uh, you can reapply in five years if you choose to. Most people don't. But fighting it is going to create a record that's going to be out there for anybody to read. So my job is to advocate for clients, but it's also to explain to them where they're headed if they go down the path of fighting a case in which it's very clear that there's no excuse for what they did. All right, let's let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk uh, first. I want to talk about uh, the Innocence Project and how easy it can be for people in whatever state you live in, but particularly here in Florida, to be convicted of a crime and imprisoned when they actually didn't do it. Tell us, uh, tell us what the Innocence Project is and, and share a story with us from, from the Innocence Project. Well, the Innocence Project began um, in New York. It was started by uh, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld. Um, Barry Sheck is still very, very involved in the Innocence Project. Um, and he's a good friend. And so now there are Innocence Projects all over the country, including in Florida. Ours is called the Innocence Project of Florida. We've been around for 17 years um, and we've exonerated over 20 people. We have the most people um, exonerated in Florida off death row um, in the country. And so I've had an opportunity, I serve as chair of the board now, I've had an opportunity to meet exonerees um, and hear their stories. Uh, one story is more uh, sad than, than the last. Um, and it's, it's, it's a function of um, a lack of DNA testing. It's a function of bad eyewitness testimony. Um, and it's a function of um, a lot of prejudice. Um, you know, a lot of poor people, uh, minority people get caught up in the system and they don't have the ability to fight. Um, you know, the public defenders are, are overworked. Um, the justice system you know, is not as fair as people would like to think that it is. And so people wind up getting convicted and trying to fight their way out. So what we do is we help exonerate the innocent. Um, we uh, just exonerated uh, two guys up in Jacksonville who had served 42 years uh, for a crime they did not commit. And, you know, I always say to a prosecutor in court when they say to me, oh, Brian, the offer's 10 years in prison. I, I always say, where were you 10 years ago to a 25-year-old prosecutor. Um, and so we really need to understand the lengths of time that some of these people spend um, in prison for things they didn't do. Uh, I've become very friendly with a guy out of Tampa, Dean McKee. He served 30 years for a murder he didn't commit that his brother framed him for. Uh, he was released last year, just opened a tattoo shop up in Pinellas County. Uh, he was supposed to get married, but during uh, the pandemic, so they had to cancel that. But um, you know, these guys come out and they, some of them get involved in the project. It's amazing. They have no bitterness. Um, they, they understand. I, I don't know how, but they do. And um, so we not only help them gain their freedom, but we also help them with social services and help them with, you know, getting licenses and bus tickets and things like that. So it's, it's, it's the most rewarding thing I've done in my career. 
All right. So now I want to ask you the question that I'm sure uh, everyone asks you when they first meet you. I know the answer, but I want the people listening and watching to know the answer. How can you represent these people who have done these terrible things? <laughs> How do I sleep at night? Um, <laughs> very well. Uh, so a long time ago, when I became a criminal defense lawyer, um, I was told, um, don't ever judge your clients. Um, and the concept of what I do as both a criminal lawyer and an ethics lawyer is I receive information about conduct. Um, and my job is to determine A, does that conduct violate the law in any way? And B, um, if so, how do I resolve it? If I spend my time saying, why'd you do that? Um, you know, how did you, you know, maybe I'm interested in the fact of, is there some kind of background story, drugs, alcohol, some family issue, mental health, whatever. But I can't waste my time being judgmental because I'm a surgeon. My job is, is there a problem? Yes. How do we fix it? It's not my job to think about, wow, this is really terrible. And this is, you know, not something that I would do. And it's funny because when I'm on the phone sometimes with bar counsel talking about an issue, they'll say to me, Brian, would you do something like this? And I say, that's not the issue. We're not talking about me. This happened. Let's talk about, you know, what the best resolution is. So I've just become kind of, you know, stoic about things that I hear because I've heard some pretty wild stuff and there's really nothing that shocks me anymore. And I just need to understand my role. And if I understand my role, which is take the information, analyze it, figure out how to resolve the situation, I get past all of that judgmental stuff about why it happened and that my client's a bad person. Um, it really, it doesn't matter to me because the system is set up to absorb all of this information and resolve it. All right. Now, now let's talk about uh, being a lawyer who handles cases as they come, right? There's no, there's no recurring revenue in your business uh, because, you know, a lawyer can make one or two mistakes, but he's not coming back to you after that. You know, uh, somebody can violate the law a couple of times, but, you know, there's really no recurring business in ethics or criminal defense. How do you handle the ups and downs of, uh, of the income in the practice of law? Great question. So that's a function of time. Um, I will tell the story that when I first went into private practice on my own in 1998, um, the first month I was in practice, I think I made $12,000. And the second month, it was April, I made 10 or $12,000. And May, I made, you know, 10, $12,000. And in June, I was looking at my phone to make sure it was connected to the wall because not a single client called, not a single dollar came in. Um, and I call that June. And every time I have that issue, I call it June. Um, and it scared the crap out of me. And I thought, oh my God, it's over. That's it. I made money for three months. <laughs> now it's over. Um, and of course, that's not what happened. But every so often, there is there's a downturn for whatever reason. And particularly now with COVID-19, there's a significant downturn in, in everything. Um, and you just have to, to, first advice I ever got was, Base everything on a month, not on a week. Okay, look at your month, not your week. Now it's like you gotta look at a quarter. 
I think. Um, because if you look at a month, you're gonna get very depressed. So number one, watch your overhead. My CPA told me that in 1998, watch your overhead. Um, don't spend money on things you don't need to spend money on. And, you know, my dad always says, you know, pay yourself first, put some money away. Um, I've been very conservative in, in my pension. Um, I have all kinds of insurances out there. Um, and I'm very lucky in that sense, because I look at lawyers who've been practicing as long as I have, they don't have any retirement savings. They don't have any insurance. They don't have anything but what's coming in next. And that's, it's a very dangerous situation to be in. So the downturns are always going to come. Even in, you know, a revenue generating operation, you're going to have issues where clients are going to say, I don't have my retainer this month. I can't pay this month. Uh, and that's obviously going to happen more and more. So, you know, if you don't have anything put away um, and you don't have any kind of, of access to credit, um, you need to start looking at your necessary expenses. And as much as you can lower them, that will benefit you when these downturns come, because at least you'll have something to cushion the blow. How do you go and find new business? You go out to lawyers and go, hey, when you get in trouble, call me. What's your, what's your strategy for finding new clients? I'm very bad about that. Um, I've never been a salesman. I have a little ad in a, a legal publication that comes out, you know, every other week. Um, and that's it. Um, I don't advertise anywhere else. Um, I am fully word of mouth, name recognition. Um, clients will tell me at the end of a successful case, hey, listen, if I ever have a problem, you know, or somebody I know. Uh, and that's, that's where it happens. It just happens. I get calls from people that say, oh, I got your name from so-and-so. Um, but that's, that's basically it. Um, like you said, there, there are some recurring clients, <laughs> unfortunately, but for the most part, it's, hey, I'm in trouble, let me call a friend. And it just so happens that friend knows of me or used me, and, and then I get the referral. So, but that's, that's the only way that I get cases. And you're really good at being connected to people in the community who get calls. I call them centers of influence in the community. How have you kind of mentored yourself or what's the strategy that you've, um, that you've employed over the years to stay connected to people who get the call when somebody makes a mistake? How do you do that? Well, you know, I, I kind of misspoke a little bit before when I said the only way I get cases is from word of mouth in terms of referrals. Um, I write a lot. I speak a lot. I do a lot of CLEs and that stuff's all over the internet. So if people Google my name, they'll, they'll find some articles and maybe a video that I've done. Um, I also try to be a resource to people for non-legal things. And I think that's something lawyers miss out on. I get calls from people and these are my favorite calls where they go, Brian, I don't know why I'm calling you, um, but I need to get my bike fixed. Do you know a good bike repair person? Um, I, actually, yeah, sure I do. I'm here, there's Tony's name, here's his phone number, tell him you heard from me. Um, and when you become what you refer to as a center of influence, meaning just the person somebody calls for like anything they need, hey, I need a, you know, a, a dinner recommendation in, in Dallas, or I need, do you know a lawyer in Montana, those kinds of things. And people just say, hey, Brian's this guy that like, I can just call him and ask him a question about something. And, and if he doesn't have the answer, he's going to get it for me. 
I got a call yesterday from a lawyer and he had a question. I didn't know the answer. I reached out to somebody else, got the answer. Um, and so I think people, especially now, need to realize that being a resource in all aspects of life is going to help your bottom line. That's, you know, for me, that's always been my strategy in business. I mean, before there was Google, there was me. That's what I tell people, right? If you didn't know where to go for dinner in Manhattan, you just tell me what price point you wanted to be at. And I would give you three places to go, depending on, you know, cuisine, maybe five places to go. Uh, if you wanted to know, um, you know, how to get to Yankee Stadium from the east side or from the west side. You would call me before there was Google. Well, these days, as, um, as I've gotten older, I find that some of the best referrals I get come from people who've called me a half dozen times with other things like stuff like you're talking about. Hey, you know, I've been through three pool guys. Who's the best pool guy, you know, to call in Miami? And by the way, that's a question I get all the time. <laughs> the pool guy question, right? Or, hey, listen, um, you know, I know that I know that you guys have done a lot of work looking for schools. Um, you know, I have a I have a kid who's going into first grade. I want to know what the best school is to send my kid to. Or, you know, what neighborhoods would you look at moving to to buy a first house? I mean, those are big questions. And people, I love it when people call me for that stuff. But even the little questions like, I got to go to a chiropractor. Who's the best chiropractor? What have you done over the years to put yourself in a position to know a lot of people in the community? I mean, you know, you don't strike me as a particularly extroverted person. But you know a lot of people. How did you get in? How did you become the person who's involved in those conversations all the time? Mentors. Um, in 1998, well, first of all, when I first became a lawyer, I uh, became a public defender. I joined the criminal defense bar um, and started meeting other criminal defense lawyers in private practice when I was a public defender, knowing, look, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to be a private lawyer at some point. I should know these people who are practicing in the private bar. And so I got to know them. And then in 1998, my mentor, one of my mentors said to me, hey, you should get involved in the young lawyers section of the Dade County Bar. And so I ran for a position. I got it. Um, there were 17 people on the board and I was the only criminal defense lawyer. And my mentor said to me, Brian, you need to understand something. Because I was a little like, why am I here? These are all civil lawyers in big firms like, what do I have in common? And he said, listen, in 15 years, these lawyers are going to be the managing partners of all the big firms in Miami. And I said, oh, and, and that's actually true. It's, it's amazing. Some have run for office and become elected. Some have become CEOs. Some have become managing partners. And we're all, we all still know each other. Um, and then I started going to a lot of different events, non-lawyer events and meeting different people. And that slowed down once, you know, my kids got a little older and I had kid events, but I'd already established those relationships. And the other thing I did was I got involved in social media. And when you talk about the issue of connecting people to non-legal things, you know, things that have nothing to do with what I do. Like when I first got on Twitter, I set up a little side screen with the hashtag Miami. And that got me all the tweets of people tweeting about Miami and I'm a native. And so people would start, you know, hey, does anyone know where I can send my grandmother flowers from? Or does anyone know how I get a reservation at this place? Or, 
you know, does anyone know about this hotel on South Beach? And I would just start kind of answering questions for people, you know, and I started, people started following me and I started meeting people and, oh, I'm coming to Miami, this and that. So you have to find a way as a lawyer, especially now, to connect yourself to people's lives outside of the legal realm. All right, folks, you've been hearing from my good friend Brian Tannenbaum today. We talked about a lot of different things. We talked about uh, the practice of law. We talked about criminal defense. We talked about society and law enforcement. We talked about running a business. There's so much more we could talk about. If you got the impression that you're eavesdropping on uh, on, on two buddies having a conversation, that's what this was. Um, I don't want to uh, I don't want to take up a lot more. Uh, of, of our time today, Brian, but why don't we give people a tease and talk to them about the thing that you spend most of your time uh, obsessing on these days, and that's wine. How did you get into wine, and why has that hobby been great for your business? So one of the things that I talked about um, in my book was get a hobby. It's one of my biggest philosophies uh, that I... I talk to lawyers about because, you know, law generally is a little dry and boring and, you know, maybe what one lawyer does is interesting, but not everybody wants to hear about it. Um, I got into wine in the, in the early 2000s um, and, you know, started liking it and buying it. And then in 2011, I became a sommelier. I went to school, took the test, um, have developed a nice collection and um, I share a lot of it with people. I donate a lot to charity. And through that hobby, um, I've got to meet some incredible people. I mean, some of the most amazing people uh, I've met have been through wine, uh, and I would have never met them otherwise. Um, and it allows me to make connections to people um, through something that people enjoy. Um, and it creates a conversation um, about travel, about soil, about geography, um, about food, and it's really brought me closer to just some incredible business owners, um, incredible people, uh, just through a, a bottle of wine. And so I've really enjoyed it. I love, you know, drinking and, and talking about wine, and, and I do some wine classes. Um, but on the side, it has been an amazing networking aspect of my life. All right, folks, that's a little tease because we will have Brian back to talk about wine in the future. Uh, Brian, what's the best way for people to reach out to you, to connect with you if they want to just ask you a question, right? I'm sure a lot of your representation comes from, hey, let me just ask you a question. Uh, how can people get a hold of you if they want to just ask you a question? <laughs> yeah, so my personal email is brian at tannenbaum.com. You got to spell tannenbaum right, T-A-N-N-E-B-A-U-M.com. Um, you know, I read my email like everybody else. And, uh, you know, if I get something, I'm happy to answer it. And uh, yeah, it's that easy. All right, folks, Brian Tannenbaum has been our guest today. It is uh, always an honor and a privilege to call him a friend. Brian, thanks for joining us. That'll do it for this episode of the Do This Sell More show. Be sure and join us right back here tomorrow. We're here every day with a new show. Twice a week we do interviews. Make sure you download the interviews. Give me your feedback. Let me know what you want to hear more of. I'm always welcoming of feedback. That's how we decide who we're going to talk to. Folks, it's been uh, truly a privilege to have Brian Tannenbaum with us today. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. Until then, please stay healthy and stay strong. Stay strong.